Amen. So glad you're with us. You can grab a seat. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here, and today we're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians. That's how this sermon part goes. We take a portion of Scripture and we just try and study it. We want to hear what God has to say to us. This series we're doing, we're going to actually try and break down this book of 1 Corinthians, understand it, and receive the teaching from it. So if you have a copy of the Bible, just a paper one, a digital one, an app, we're not picky. I just encourage you to turn or tap your way to 1 Corinthians. If you don't uh, have a copy of the Bible in a modern English translation, we'd love to gift you one so that you can kind of keep up and see where we're getting this stuff that we're talking about. And as we jump into 1 Corinthians, we jump into uh, the topic of. We want to submit ourselves to the teaching of 1 Corinthians, and it's teaching us about each other. It's teaching us about the church. It's teaching us about the way we are supposed to do life together. And it's very descriptive in a helpful but sometimes kind of a painful way of describing why it can be difficult for us to to do more with church than just the event. And ask yourself what a church is. Is a church a weekly event? Is the church just the services? Or is the church something more? Do you need to expect from the church something that is, I don't know, not just more relational, but more everything, more in your life, more part of what's going on, more, um, more of a light, a place where you can receive things that God has said, more of a model, a place where you can see these things lived out, not just morals, but, but what does it mean to have the gospel and live life in light of the gospel? What is it like to be a part of the family? That God's given. I, I think we're in a, a uniquely difficult place culturally when it comes to committing to and submitting to the structure that God has given for His people. Now, again, you know, I'm not asking too much before we try to explain it or defend it. I want you to see what the Scripture talks about, but it, as we jump into it, I want you to kind of hold in your own head that experience, both the pleasure and the pain of really trying to connect in a church. If, you, if you've been a part of a church before, I don't, I don't want to assume that. A lot of people are coming from different backgrounds, but if you have, there are things that are desperately attractive and also wholly unattractive about being not just a part of a church, but really a part of a community, a part of a, a family. This is what Paul says. He opens up his book 1 Corinthians was actually a letter written by Paul to a church that he planted. This apostle or follower of Jesus wrote a, a, a letter to a church that he had helped to start and then had left to go and start other churches. He's writing them a letter. But even in this salutation, even in these first three verses, you start seeing him building out both the temptation and the reality of what it's like to be part of the church. He says in verse 1, Paul himself, this is how letters were written in the ancient times, you start by saying who you are and then who you're writing to and then a salutation and then you get into the meat of it. That's what he does. He says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. So he's not writing it by himself. He's got another guy that's helping to write it. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, I'm not sure if you caught it yet. I've got an advantage because you can read the rest of the chapter and then kind of see how the themes that are in the rest of the chapter start in these first three verses. But what Paul's doing is he's already kind of building it out. He's saying, I'm Paul, and I have this authority. He describes himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. It's necessary. He's telling them his title. He's reminding them why he has the right to write these things to them. It's a given right. It's not his own, but, but it is impressive. And as soon as he says it, because he has to, he kind of starts giving them other pieces to who he is. Yes, he is an apostle. Yes, he has the authority to write the stuff he's writing. Yes, he has the Holy Spirit speaking through him. And yet, he's not singular. He's got Sosthenes by his side. And he's not writing a pronouncement in the same way as he's communicating with his family. He's talking to people who are together the church of God that's in Corinth. Those who together have been sanctified by the same Christ Jesus who called him to be an apostle. Those who are called to be saints together. Why is that word even there? You can just say the same sentence without that word and it's working. But they say that word together because they're starting again to remind them of what it is to be called as a part of this body together with all of those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Christ Jesus. So way beyond even just Corinth, the, the massive network of people that they are now connected to, submitted within, following and finding and loving all under the headship, all under the name of their Lord Jesus Christ, both Paul and Sosthenes' Lord and the Corinthians' Lord. And for those that have committed themselves to Christ, even they're our Lord today. And then he says grace and peace. So here's where that grace and that peace is coming from. Here's the threat to it. There's a tension there. He's describing himself as a person who is important. But he's immediately trying to wrap that calling or wrap that name or wrap that kind of commission with this idea of being together, this idea of being a family. That's where I think the rub is. Culturally, the rub with really getting to know people and engaging in life together is that there's a humility involved. I think this is the part that culturally we have such a difficult time with because culturally we are encouraged to go and sort of actualized, to, to take who we are and who we want to be and bring those things sort of together, uncover the real you, to develop into what you think you should be, what you would like to be. And yet what Paul is describing and, and kind of, I don't know, anytime you say that there's really a God that's God, he's describing something that requires a lot more humility, the humility of trying to live together. It's a tension. It's a tension because there's always a desire to go and be by yourself and create something really interesting. And yet, there's always a desire to be with the pleasure, the meaning, the love of community. Here's how this guy, now I'm going to say his name, and um, you know I always have to get help on how to spell it, but his name is Arthur Schopenhauer. He's a highly influential German philosopher and he talked about what it's like to be a person in a world and in community by talking about what he called the porcupine problem. Now, I love that he has this high and lofty name and that he has this, you know, um, status as this 1800s German, you know, pessimist philosopher. And yet he's got these really great analogies like the porcupine problem or the hedgehog dilemma. Uh, the porcupine problem. What is the porcupine problem? Well, porcupines are uh, in the wintertime cold. You're following? And in the cold, they want to not be cold, and so they find other porcupines. But what's the problem with snuggling with a porcupine? 
the pines, right? Like the stickers. And so as they get together because of the cold, they immediately then poke each other and separate. But then what happens? Well, it's still cold. So they still have this temptation like, okay, but maybe, you know, maybe last time, maybe this time, you know, and maybe they try and like lay their quills as well as they can so they can get a little closer in the warmth. And then, ah, the sticker happens again. Here's what he says that is analogy of. He says, so the need for society, which springs from the emptiness and monotony of men's lives, drives them together. But their many unpleasant and repulsive qualities, their many insufferable drawbacks, once more drive them apart. Sounds very German. If you say it in a German accent, it's really funny. Um, but, But the idea is, You can go and do your own thing. You can take care of yourself. You can go and build your own name. But if you choose to do that, there is a necessary coldness that comes with it. A necessary, he says, emptiness and monotony. And so, as you experience that cold, you turn around and you see the community of people. You see people who are engaging in love and meaning. And you say, okay, that is what I need. Gah! You know, I'm building this name, but I do need to be with a community. I do need people. And so you start going into community, and as you do, necessarily, the many unpleasant and repulsive qualities that you have poke other people, and their many and repulsive qualities and insufferable drawbacks poke you. I mean, I think we've discovered this together before. As you go into community, maybe you present kind of a version of yourself. You try and hide as many of your quills as you can. And you get in and you start hanging out and it does create meaning in your life. You've got these other people that you can serve that can speak into your world. you got love. But it's not too long before something happens, right? It's not too long before somebody gets poked. That's what Paul's describing, and he's going to kind of put the solution before the problem a little bit because he's writing a whole letter, but we're just focused on this first part today. So I want to skip down to him talking about this problem a little bit in verse 10. So if you're in 1 Corinthians 1, go down to verse 10 where he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, that there be no divisions among you but that you may be unified in the same mind and have the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Christmas and guys, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. (laughs) For the Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Do you see what he's saying? See what he's describing? The Holy Spirit sends this Apostle Paul into Corinth, and he gives him the word. Hey, I've got many in the city. Keep preaching. He's there for like two years. Acts chapter 18 is the description of Paul going and planting this church in Corinth. I'd encourage you to go and read it if you have time later today. But as he's there and as he's preaching, the Holy Spirit, through the, the, the speaking of Paul, the faithfulness, the, the gospel goes forward, and there's this huge response. People say yes. 
They submit themselves to the lordship of Christ. They, who knows what their background was, but they come in, they hear this gospel of God's holiness, our fallenness, Christ's solution, and they say, yeah, that is a key that fits into the lock of the world that I see around me. That describes perfectly my longing for justice, the brokenness that I see everywhere inside and outside of myself, and a loving solution that I never would have come up with of God sacrificing himself to bring us back into that relationship. It's beautiful. Yes, gospel community begins. There's a church that begins. These people are now followers of Christ and they're followers together. They've been brought together by this gospel. Paul leaves and he gets reports from Chloe's people that it's not gone too long and all of a sudden, you know, the spines are poking. People are subdividing. And the way that they're subdividing is that they're taking on these labels of different leaders that they think represents best the sort of poke and reaction they're experiencing from the other people in the church. We can kind of fill this in a little bit. Now we're coloring between the lines, but we've got a lot that we know about Paul, Apollo, Cephas, and of course Christ. And so we can kind of bring these things together a little bit. What he says when he says that some say they follow Paul, Paul was the originator, he was the planter. Clearly, he was a brilliant, brilliant man. Clearly, he was super committed to the gospel that God had given him. But he's also not very physically impressive. He speaks with boldness, but he was a guy who was, he carried on his body the marks of his faithfulness towards Christ. And he wasn't somebody that I think popular people who wanted to kind of be impressive to the world would look at and want to be like. So the people who said they followed Paul, they were probably the hardcore people, and they're probably the originators. These are people who really liked how the church used to be, maybe. Then you have people like Apollos, or people who say that they follow Apollos. Apollos was this incredible preacher. He would go around and he would speak and he would prove from the Old Testament how Jesus is the Christ, but he needed um, some other people that kind of spoke into his life and they helped him to understand the fullness of the gospel. And so he starts preaching. He's very persuasive. He's very effective as a rhetorician, as a speaker. And he's somebody that was from a pretty cool city. He was from Alexandria. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, it's still a thing today, but in Egypt at the time, it was a big deal. Alexandria had these massive libraries. It was a center of learning. It was a cool thing to be from Alexandria. It would look like he was a pretty impressive dude. And you have these people that had put themselves behind Apollos, put themselves behind the cool preacher from the cool place with the cool degree. And then you have people that say, no, 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 I follow Peter. As we're going to get into this letter, you're going to see that there's a tension in this church between the people who were non-Jewish ethnically or religiously and became Christians and people who were Jewish ethnically or religiously and became Christians. They come from very different home lives, very different backgrounds. And as God mixes these people together in the church, there's an oil and water kind of moment. I think these, the people that are saying, no, I follow Peter, are probably those that were Jewish Christians. These are people who said in the place of Corinth, as Jews who have now become Christians, that their leader is sort of the exemplar of a Jew who became a Christian. You would think Paul, but listen, Peter is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. That's a big deal. He sits in leadership over the church of their capital city, of the place where the temple is, of their national capital. I, I mean, I can see the appeal. Lastly, you have this group that says, no, 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 I don't follow these men. I follow Christ. Now, we know that Jesus is the right answer. 
I don't know if you're new to church or not, but if anybody ever asks you like a theological question, just jump in with Jesus. You don't have to know what they're talking about or the right answer. Just say, hmm, sounds like maybe Jesus. You're always right. And they're right. Jesus is the leader. That's the name that they were baptized into, not Paul. Paul wasn't crucified for him. Jesus was. So yeah, being the Christ party is right. But Paul doesn't commend them for that, does he? They're still fractionalists. They're still divisive. They're still breaking up the body of Christ under this title. So I think we have to wonder, what does it look like for somebody who rejects all leadership in the church except for Jesus? I mean, you can say you're doing that, but if you reject the leadership that Jesus put in place, you're also rejecting Jesus, right? I think these might be the kind of people who really have a problem with anybody being in charge of anything but themselves. Something to think about. As you're looking at this, you can say, okay, you know, there's some historical reconstruction you're doing there. Maybe that's helpful. Maybe that's not. I'm not sure that I follow. You know what? I bet you can, though. You don't have to know about Paulus or Alexandria to know what it's like to be a proud person who has difficulty integrating into a group. I mean, I think that's all of us, right? There's a commentator on 1 Corinthians. He says it this way. The fact The one fact that most people have at their fingertips concerning the Corinthian church is that it was a mess, full of problems, sins, and some weird ones. We're going to talk about it as we go through it. Division, we're already describing that, and heresy. It was, in a sense, I'm sorry, it was in this sense, no different from any other modern church. The Corinthian church was a mess. It was full of problems, sin, division, heresy. And it was in this way, in this sense, no different from any modern church. Church is a fellowship of sinners before it is a fellowship of saints. God calls those who are far from Him near. When He does, He gives you a new heart. He gives you new loves. But there's still that old way. There's still things that need to change. We all bring that pain of what we should be leaving behind into the church. Another way to kind of see it. Now, Schopenhauer is a a brilliant guy, and he strongly influenced brilliant, brilliant guys like Tolstoy and Nietzsche and um, Einstein, if you've heard of that guy. Smart people liked Schopenhauer. And if you're a smart, smart person, go read him. Sure. Good luck. But a more helpful look at the porcupine problem happened to me on Friday night as we saw... Have you guys seen the second Puss in Boots movie? I don't know if they're reading Schrodinger... um, I'm sorry, Schopenhauer or not. But they did a really great job. They describe it really well. It's part of the Shrek cinematic universe. I'm not sure where it fits in that series of movies. I think I saw the first Puss in Boots movie. It's been a long time. But the second, can I tell you? (laughs) It's pretty good. Uh, you know, if you've got kids, there's, there's some rubs, there's some moments where they use weirdly kind of saucy language and then bleep it. I've not seen that in a kid's movie before. There were some scary moments where people were kind of in my lap. But other than that, does a pretty good job of describing the tension between trying to be a hero, not necessarily be a servant, but be impressive, or being in community. Pride, loneliness, humility, love. You have Puss in Boots. He's this Zorro figure. He's this awesome, legendary, fearless hero who sings a song about it. He says, who is your favorite fearless hero? But I don't know if you think of Antonio Banderas as a singer. Fantastic. And he sings this song about his image and the pursuit of this beautiful image. 
But you see, as he's at the bar alone, drinking his cream, he's also Puss in Boots alone. He is that name, but he's only that name. And you wonder if he's going to reject the possibility of community, the love of Kitty Softpaws, and the friendship of Paralito uh, the Chihuahua. And he has to chase this line of either fame and pride or love and fellowship. See the movie. I mean, it does a great job. In this fairy tale, both DreamWorks and Schopenhauer are doing with crystal clear vision a description. They're describing what all of us have to endure. Is it worth the mess to be a part of a community? Or is it better to just pursue your own name? What both Schopenhauer and Kitty Softpaws have proven is the irony that if you only go after building your own thing, keeping yourself safe, working on your own comfort, you end up, instead of building a great name for yourself, both nameless and alone. I mean, culturally, there's, there's so many different ways to say it. There's a, a really powerful, short poem. I don't know if you're into poems or not, but it's uh, Percy Shelley called Ozymandias. And he says, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. But the story of the poem is a traveler who runs into this plaque and the feet of a great statue, but behind it, only desert. So who knows what this kingdom was? Who knows the, the might that it had in its big heyday? Right now, it's just dust and ashes. So there's an irony in the only thing that still exists of this kingdom being the boastful pride of its master. And yet, you and I have that same temptation. We say, you know, whatever your name is, my name is Chad, king of kings. Look at my works, ye mighty, in despair. Like you have that desire. But I, I think we all realize that what ends up happening is, is what the Bible says and, and what, you know, again... Uh, Puss and Boots learned as death pursues us all. You're going to die alone and nameless. What I think both of those stories, the porcupine problem and Puss and Boots do kind of fail at, while maybe pointing a little bit, Puss and Boots better than Schopenhauer, is the solution. So go back up to verse 4. Here's where Paul, he starts giving the biblical solution to that tension. He says, I give thanks to my God always, because of you, uh, for you. I, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. I want you to remember this verse as we go through this book because this church is a pill. And yet, Paul is thankful to God always for this church because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Not because of who you are, but because of what God through Christ Jesus has done, is doing, will do in you. That in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What's the answer to that tension? Well, it's to look to Jesus. 
is to look to Jesus. It's to say, I can't only serve myself and my pride. I need love. I need meaning. And yet, when I pursue it, I'm going to get poked. It's going to get messy. The spines are going to get me. How do I stay with it? How do I stay in it? Well, look at the equipment that God has promised you in Christ. He has promised you, if you have the gospel, that he has enriched the people in that church with all speech and all knowledge. That he has confirmed the people in the church in the gospel of God's grace and forgiven them in Jesus. That he has given gifts to the church so that they have everything they need. That he has given hope as they wait, that there is an eventual promise, an eventual making right of all things, eventual deep, you know, stickering of the people of God that is to come. That he has promised to sustain and to clean them. He says that God, verse 8, will sustain the church in Corinth to the end and that he will present them guiltless, stainless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the temptation back over here? I mean, I've made it this big pride thing, but maybe it's also something that we understand in a different way. Still shot through with pride, but, but maybe you would say, no, the reason that I want to be away from other people is actually a little bit more shame-based. I mean, there's certainly people that have been victimized in terrible ways, and one of the incredible, awful side effects of being a victim like that is that you feel shame. We would say it's misplaced. You're a victim, not a perpetrator, and yet the numbers are there. Jesus talks about it another way, not about victims, but about those of us that have chosen to disobey God, which biblically is, is everybody. And again, I, I don't want to apologize for what Jesus has said. He's God. You might not like it, but he was clear that another reason that we sometimes want to be alone or we want to hide from community is that the darkness allows us to kind of keep our ways secret because our ways are evil. That's what Jesus described it, that coming into community is coming into a place where you do have to reveal something of who you are. Now, a lot of us try to wear like a mask metaphorically, right? Like we try to show up in community and show like our best side. And I get that. I mean, that's where we all start. But over time, you do have to reveal something of who you are, and something of who you are is going to be ugly at parts. How do you have the equipment to endure each other's guilt and shame together? Well, the gospel. He is going to sustain you to the end and present you guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That that's the story of the gospel. It is not God looking out and seeing wonderful people and saying, wow, these guys are really doing great, so I'm going to give them heaven, and these guys are doing terribly, so I'm going to give them hell. I think that's what people think religion is. But the story of the gospel is God looking out on everybody and going, wow, totally not what they should be doing. Totally not who they should be. And yet, in love, making a way for you to be made guiltless through what Jesus has done for you. So the story of the gospel is the story of your failing God and Him loving you through it. The story of the gospel means that you should have humility from the moment that you say yes to Jesus. Why? So, Again, Schopenhauer, he was really clear that the only time the porcupine problem didn't apply is when you're a kid. When you're a kid, you're innocent. 
Now, of course, you're not. You know, if you have kids, they're terrible, right? But you have an innocence in that. Your prickles are still small prickles. They haven't gotten as long yet. Your parents have a ton of grace towards you, and they have their prickles under control enough to really care for you well. And again, if you're a kid, you know, parents are terrible people, right? I mean, they're not going to not prickle you. But there's an innocence early in childhood. Now, if you're going to read Schopenhauer, you're already past your childhood, right? So there's a little bit of a pessimism to it. He was called a German pessimist about the fact that there is no happiness possible. (laughs) The only happiness that was possible, it's already done. It was when you were a child. It was the Eden of your life. And that's his word, his phrasing. Do you understand biblically that when we think about what it is to be the Lord's, that's actually a pretty helpful illustration. God talks about creation and putting Adam and Eve in this perfect garden where they really were innocent. They had never sinned. And yet when we sinned, we were. We were taken out of Eden and the innocence is lost. We want to go back there, but we can't. We want to go back to the place where things are perfect and there's no prickers. There's no no quills that are stabbing anybody. Everything is just great. There's love, there's meaning, and you don't even need humility because you just got each other and it's all great. We can walk with God in the cool of the day. But you can't go back to Eden. God talked about putting an angel with a flaming sword on the side of Eden. You can't go back into that garden. He really did. He kicked them out. And you think, man, that's not a very good God. It's not a very kind God. He gave us one rule. We broke it, but he immediately went straight to death sentence. Instead of being in the garden, he takes us out and he puts us out in the wilderness. He puts us out in the porcupines. The lovely story of the gospel, though, is that though there is God in the garden, there's also God in the wilderness. The story of Jesus is that as the people are kicked out of Eden, they look out in the wilderness and they see God standing there. Jesus' life as he comes and lives was not an Edenic life. He didn't go and keep himself in comfort and perfection. No, he came to be among us. As soon as his ministry begins and he comes up out of the water of his baptism, the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting and then temptation by the enemy himself, which, of course, Christ resists in the wilderness for us, with us. In his ministry, he's out in desolate places, both early and late, praying for the people, weeping over Jerusalem in the desert. That he's out in desolate places as the crowds come and he heals them, blessing them with heavenly bread, breaking bread, and all of a sudden, miraculously feeding thousands of people in the wilderness. The story of the the cross is that he's killed outside the camp. And you can develop that theme all throughout the Old Testament that the sacrifice that was given the sin of the people was cast outside of the camp. Holiness is inside of the camp. The people are sinful, so they're putting their sin on this thing that is cast away from the holiness, away from the love, outside the camp when Jesus is killed on the cross. He's not killed in Jerusalem. He's killed outside the city. They send him back out into the wilderness where he is bereft, both of man and from the cross of God. In the wilderness himself, drinking the fullness of the wrath of God that you and I deserve for breaking that fellowship. You want to know how you can get back into Eden? You can't. But you can get into heaven. If what you want is to be back with the Lord, you can. You can have him. 
That's what Paul does when he wants to reunite these people that are already starting to splinter. And they've got their names for it, and they say that it's some big argument, and they say that they're right and other people are wrong. But when you get right down to it, the reason they're breaking up is that pride, that lack of humility to gather together around the one thing that brings them all together, which is the cross of Christ, the gospel of God's love for you. As we go through this series... We're going to point out again and again what the church is, why it's so good, why it's worth the mess. And I hope we're going to be realistic about the mess. I mean, there's stickers involved. But man, it can be endured if you keep your eye on the one name that is the name. You can't go out and build your own name, but if you will submit yourself to the Lord, the name that everyone will confess one day, the name before which every knee will bow one day, if you'll, if you'll come in on your knees, you can have that second Eden experience. You can be what's called born again. You can do what God said in Jesus as he is teaching, where he says you have to be like a child to come into his kingdom. Like a child enjoying again the beauty of being in a family with a father. Yeah, you're not in control, but he is, and he's good. I, I hope that we haven't buried the lead here and, and that you understand there, there's going to be pain involved. But to know the Lord and to be a part of His system and His church, oh, it's worth the mess. So come back. Let's keep thinking about it together. And maybe over time through this series, you can meet some people and maybe it works out. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, I do ask that you would gather your people, that your church would be a place that, that honors you because it reflects you. It's a people who are clear about what holiness is and what sin is and our part in sin, our, our culpability, really and truly, but also a place that's really clear about the love that you show us, that you're not content to, to send us out of Eden, but you go into the wilderness for us. You go down to death in our place, and then you rise to life to make a way for us to be with you forever. Father, I, I pray that that message would be first clear, but then also compelling. And that we would join in, Lord, join in on your salvation, join in on your love, join in on your church forever. Father, we do love you. And we pray all of these things for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray.